Today's scripture comes from Jonah 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, as always, we remain people who are most grateful for our opportunity to gather together, to open the scriptures, to sing, to worship you, to celebrate communion, to, to be together as your people. And we pray that as we move through this text today, that you would reveal more of your great love to us, uh, that you would re reveal more of your grace and your kindness to us. And Lord, I pray for all, whether they're people who've been following you for a long time or people who are just trying to figure out what this is. Lord, I pray that you would speak to all of us and that you would help us to live our lives in a way that would glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my name is Brett. I'm part of the team here, and uh, it is my joy to be opening the scriptures from Jonah chapter 3 today. Uh, three weeks ago, when we began this series of sermons, I said Jonah is unique as a prophet in the sense that he is the only prophet that God called to go alone into the midst of enemy territory and pronounce a word of judgment upon them. God called Jonah to travel about 800 kilometers from where he was to the city of Nineveh into the heart of what was the Assyrian Empire by himself, to deliver a word of warning to people who were renowned for their evil. And I quoted one Jewish author who, who said, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. So God calls Jonah to go, and Jonah says, no. We're not used to seeing that response from prophets in the Bible. Jonah thinks he knows better. He doesn't trust God's plan for him. So he heads out on what I want to call his circuit of disobedience. He moves out, and he tries to run from the presence of God. He tries to take matters into his own hands. He tries to take control. And over the last couple of weeks, we saw where that got him. It got him onto a boat. It got him into a storm. It got him tossed over the edge of the boat into the sea. It got him into the belly of the whale. And then it got him back to where he first started from, the circuit of disobedience. He ended up back at his point of origin after all of that. 
his circuit of disobedience just brought him back to where he first encountered the word of the Lord. Now, Jonah, I said, is the only biblical prophet that God calls to walk alone into the heart of enemy territory with a word of judgment. But Jonah is also the only biblical prophet who needed to have his assignment given twice. Jonah chapter one, verse one says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Jonah goes, nope, I'm not gonna do that. After the circuit of disobedience, he gets the assignment again here at the beginning of chapter three. It says in verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And as we will look at this in the rest of chapter 3 here today, I want to tell you where we're going. We're going to talk about Jonah and the Ninevites. We're going to talk about us and our culture. We're going to talk about Jesus and the world. Jonah and the Ninevites, us and our culture, Jesus and the world. Just for those of you who get very nervous in sitting, the first point is the longest one by far. So when you're thinking to yourself, he still has two more, don't worry. It is okay. Now, the text itself, I want you to notice something in the text. Jonah responds to God's call. And then he takes that word that God gave him and he goes and he speaks it to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites respond to the preaching of Jonah. And then the king responds to the word that Jonah delivered. And then God responds based on how they respond. Jonah responds to God. The people respond to God. The king responds to God. And God responds to them. I want us to think through that as we look at the text. I want to show you verse 3. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the entirety of his message. I'm sure he said other things, but that was what he said. That's what was recorded. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah, as he's fresh off this experience of God's grace, he hears this commissioning from God a second time and he, he gets up to go to Nineveh. Like I said, probably about an 800 kilometer journey, which would have taken him at least a month to make if he was on camel or donkey. If he was walking much longer, I have no idea how long that would take. It's a long journey. Let's just say it took him a month. What do you think he was meditating on for that month on his way to Nineveh? Because that's a long time. Like I know some of you don't have the ability to put your phone down for more than a couple minutes because your thoughts start to, <laughs> I'm alone with my thoughts. <laughs> what do you think he's thinking about for a month? Traveling to a place that he did not want to go after he already tried to run away. He's doing it. The text doesn't tell us this directly, what he was thinking. I don't want to pretend that I know what he was thinking. But if you pull the, the threads together of the rest of the book of Jonah, and you start to build a bit of a composite of his, of his heart and, and his intent and the way that he's going about things, you start to pull it together. I think we can kind of get a sense of his thoughts. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 4. He's not entirely thrilled. I don't know what he's thinking about for the whole month, but he's not thrilled about what he's doing. He's doing it. I don't think his heart is in it. I don't think his heart has been transformed by his experience of God's grace. And if you were to look back at the way that he prays in chapter 2, we looked at this last week, you can see some signs that he's not really getting it. There's a, a tension between his actions and his words. 
And I didn't highlight it last week. I want to highlight it today so that we begin to maybe put ourselves in his shoes, maybe understand his thoughts, try to get a sense of what he's thinking. The words that he speaks when he prays in chapter 2 are perfect. They are correct. They are true. But they seem a little bit self-centered. They seem a little self-centered. See, God saved him, but the way that he speaks about it, it's like, I called out to the Lord. And then he, later on he says, I remembered the Lord. Be like, bro, you were on a ship in a storm and they tossed you overboard. Then you got swallowed up by a whale and you're in the belly of the whale and you're going, I called out to the Lord. I remembered the Lord. It's very self-referential, which is not always a bad thing when you're praying. It's just kind of a bad thing when that's not exactly how the circumstances brought you to the place you are. So what's going on? He also declares salvation belongs to the Lord, which is obviously true, and it's a wonderful realization. But in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Again, I want you to hear me. What he said is true. (laughs) Doesn't it strike you as a little bit odd that he's in the belly of the whale talking about others and the way that they have forsaken God (laughs) while he is in the midst of being saved from his own rebellion and disobedience? I think that's odd. And here's the problem with it. Jonah got tossed overboard in a way that says, I would rather die than go to Nineveh and preach to those people. He thinks he's better than them. I think he probably thinks he's better than the sailors in chapter one. Talking about idolaters. See, I think Jonah has right doctrine, and now he's got this experience of God's grace, but I think he misses it when it comes to how far gone he himself was. And I think he misses it when he figures out what that should mean about his grace for others. He was a willing recipient of God's grace, but he's a a reluctant extender of God's grace. And that's a problem. He still obeys God and he still goes into the city. He's a willing recipient of God's grace, but he's a very reluctant extender of it. And that tells you something about the posture of his heart. Again, he's obedient. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. He goes to Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he has for the city of Nineveh a warning of judgment. How do they respond? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the citizens of the city hear him proclaim the word from God and they believe it. The people believed it. They called for a fast They put on the clothes of mourning and repentance, which is in contrast to the guy who prayed for almost the entirety of chapter 2 and did not repent. Do you see the contrasting irony here of the prophet who is gone, the people who hear a quick word from the Lord, and they repent, yet he's got a hard heart? The people lead the way in repentance, but it wasn't just the commoners who responded to the preaching of Jonah. So look at verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The ruler of the city, the king of Nineveh, gets up off his throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, clothing of mourning or repentance, sits himself down on the ground in a pile of ashes. That's his personal response. He gets low. And then he issues a decree. I want you to see that it started with the people and then it went to the king. This suggests, well, Phyllis Tribble, one commentator, she said, this suggests the riches of inclusivity from royalty to commoners, nobility to peasants, age to youth, powerful to powerless, indeed all sorts and conditions of folks. Christ City, the gospel is for all kinds of people. It doesn't matter who they are, how successful they are, how rich they are, how poor they are. They all bend a knee to God in the hope that he will hear their cry, he will see the way that they repent, the way that they have turned away from their evil deeds and their violence in the hopes that he may perhaps relent and save them. And he does. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Praise God. All of heaven rejoices the repentance of one sinner. This whole city seems to be bowing their hearts low before him from the peasants to the king, from the young to the old. Every strata of society seems to respond to the message that Jonah has brought. They turn from their wickedness, they get low before God in humble repentance. Now I want you to notice that if the king was first to repent and then issued a decree you could make the argument that the people were not responding to the leading of God, but they were responding to the fear of their king. If the king responded first and issued a decree, everybody better do their thing, fall in line. That's how things worked, this part of the world at this time in history. But that's not what happened. The movement of repentance started from the streets and then went to the throne, which meant their hearts were in it. It's a picture of total heart change. This isn't half-hearted. This isn't shallow. This isn't words. This isn't mere lip service, but a literal turning away from their evil and from the violence that they had been doing. So the, the prophet Jonah, you've got to think he is thrilled at the news. He is thrilled. The whole thing he's gone through to get there, the circuit of disobedience, the second chance God gave him that he almost just didn't get, and then the long journey to get to Nineveh, all the work that he did, plus the fear that he would have had going into an enemy city as a lone prophet, dressed differently, looking different, different kind of message, not a great sermon, right? 40 days and it's all going to be overthrown. You got to think Jonah's thrilled, right? <laughs> right? No. Look at the next verse, Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. All right. Jonah's so angry, he wants to die. What's he angry at? Jonah's so angry at God, he wants to die. 
Last week when I said it comes to, when it, when it comes to God's grace and God's salvation, there is no deserving or undeserving. There's just lost and found. But Jonah does not get that. Jonah is a willing recipient of God's grace, but he is a reluctant extender of God's grace. Jonah thinks he merits salvation. He thinks the Ninevites don't. He thinks he's deserving, and he thinks they are undeserving. And when they don't get the doom and they don't get the judgment he warned them about, he is not thankful at the revelation of God's grace and mercy and steadfast love. He's angry. Now, here's the thing about what Jonah delivered to them as a word. Look back at it, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you see that word, overthrown? You're going to have to do a little bit of work with me today. You in? Are you in? Okay, it was three of you. That's very exciting. Okay, you get a little bit of work here. That word overthrown, okay, in the old, the, the old Testament is written in Hebrew and it's translated into English for us. And there are two ways that you can understand the Hebrew word behind the word overthrown. The word itself in Hebrew is used 92 times in the Old Testament. And based on the context of the story of what's going on and the sentence structure in and around the, the word itself, it can have one of two opposite meanings which in the context that it's written is usually very clear which one it's actually pointing out. There's not, not, not a lot of ambiguity. But it's intentionally ambiguous here in Jonah, and that's kind of the point. Okay, The word overthrown can be read two different ways. Usually it's very easy to understand which way you can read it. Here it is not, and I think that's the point. This is the word that is used in Genesis chapter 19 when God overthrows the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were just evil cities doing evil things, and God said, I'm going to destroy them. There's a whole story about it in Genesis 19, and it's a really compelling picture of the consequences of unrepentant sin. So God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah because of the unchecked evil that was happening there, and it's in that sense, it says in the text, that he overthrows them. Same word. It's destruction. But it's also the same word that's used in Jeremiah 31, when God promises that he will transform the people's mourning into joy. Look at the text, Jeremiah 31, 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old men shall be merry. I will turn, that's the word, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Okay, so the word can mean destruction, or it can mean like a turning upside down. It can mean a reversal. It can mean a change of heart. It's intentionally ambiguous here in our text, and that's meant to expose something. See, if they refuse to repent, they will be overthrown and destroyed. That's true. If they willingly repent, which they do, they will then be transformed. Overthrown in the sense of transformation, not overthrown in the sense of destruction. And this is the beautiful thing about the way that it was written. The ambiguity does not expose the Ninevites. The ambiguity exposes the heart of the prophet. Because he wanted something to happen in Nineveh. 
and he was quite sure that he'd been given the word of the Lord that he was going to deliver to this city 40 days and y'all are going to be overthrown. And he liked that because he didn't think they deserved God's grace. So he's preaching a word of destruction. It's this ambiguity that exposes Jonah's heart. He wants their destruction, but God is working for their transformation. And when their response is repentance that leads to the transformation of their hearts, Jonah is livid, he is angry, he would rather die than see his enemies saved by the grace and mercy of God. That's what's going on in our text. One commentator said Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. Now he turns right around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance. A graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. I read that quote this week. My chair's got wheels on it. I just poof off my desk. Just slid my chair back. I work right next to Sam. Turn my chair, and he's got his headphones on, which in our workspace means don't bother me. And he's very focused, and so I'm afraid to interrupt him. I'm not afraid to interrupt anybody else on our team, but Sam, I am a little bit. <laughs> I turned around and looked, and he was very focused, and I left him alone. And then it was like I, it was like I could almost feel him take his headphones off, and I spun my chair around, and I said, Sam, you got to hear this. <laughs> A graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. Sometimes a sentence can just grab me. I don't know if it grabs you. It's just, it's a compelling thing. Consider this. A couple weeks ago, John, in his sermon, he said, if you hate people, you will always be in conflict with a loving God. That's what's going on here. He hates the Ninevites. And he is so angry that God would show his grace to them. If you hate people, you will always be in conflict with a loving God. That's Jonah's problem. Christ City, how are we doing with it? That's Jonah and the Ninevites. How about us in our culture? How about us in our culture? Like Jonah, we've been called by God to bear witness to the truth of the gospel, the good news that God saves. Like Jonah, we've been commissioned to take the good news that we have received by grace and to share that grace with the people who have not yet heard it. Like Jonah, we have been sent with this message into a city that is so important to God. Nineveh was a city that was important to God. Like Jonah, we've been tasked with warning the city around us about the judgment of God that all people will receive if they reject the free offer of salvation and the free forgiveness in Christ. Like Jonah, our message has a dual edge to it. Repent of your sin and trust in God and you will be saved. Reject God and stand in your sin and you will experience judgment and eternal condemnation. Listen, Jonah preached the wrath of God and the city repented. Some of us might be tempted to think, well, that kind of preaching about hell and destruction and the wrath of God, that just doesn't work today. That is revealing to us about ourselves. And it doesn't reveal our gentle, nuanced 21st century sensibilities as much as it reveals our fear of man and maybe even our doubt in God's power to save. 
See, we just, we just want to say nice things. Well, in perhaps the most well-known text in the Bible concerning the love of God, Jesus teaches us a far more balanced approach. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, we have to preach the whole gospel. You don't get to pick the nice bits and go, I just want to say the nice things. You preach the whole gospel. In the city of Vancouver, if you go around and you say things like, God loves you to people in Vancouver, they go, yeah, I'm awesome. God loves you. They're like, uh-huh, just keep walking. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're going to say next, I don't want to hear, but I like that part. God loves you. Yes, he does. See, I, I, I was raised, uh, I was born in the early 80s. And I was raised in the era of self-esteem. Yeah? I grew up in a pretty like, balanced household on this. <laughs> but I was raised in the era of self-esteem where like, every, I was just taught my whole life, every class from kindergarten to grade 12, you are special. There is no one like you. You're a beautiful snowflake, unique in all your ways. This is literally the stuff I was fed my whole childhood and adolescence. The self-esteem generation. Well, guess what? The self-esteem generation are leading the city at this point. So when you go to somebody, you go, God loves you. You go, he better. I'm unique. I am beautiful in all my ways. This is the kind of stuff that we have conversations about in our culture. People will ignore the fact that God loves you because that is a generic statement of nicety. It's ignorable. It's true. And you can start there, but you have to preach the whole gospel. Later in John chapter 3, John, who wrote John's gospel, in verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is, we have to warn people. So the tension that we have, this is the tension that we have in, the, in our ministry as followers of Jesus. Every single one of us have this ministry. We have received grace like Jonah. We have been commissioned to share it like Jonah. But are we willing to share it with people we don't like and people we think don't deserve it? That's the question. That's what we're confronted with when we study the book of Jonah. So if you're rich, do you despise the poor? Because if you despise the poor, you can't share the gospel with them. If you're poor and you despise the rich, you can't share the gospel with them. If you're middle class, hardworking, paycheck to paycheck, and you despise the rich and look down on the poor, you can't share the gospel with them. I once heard a person who felt called into vocational ministry say in Vancouver, out loud, at a party with a bunch of people, I just can't stand all these rich people. My heart sank. Because I knew in that moment that God could not use this person in this city. And they've been gone for a very long time. 
You can't preach a God of love to people you hate. And you can't rid yourself of hate until you have had a true encounter with the God of love. If you're racially prejudiced, if you are ethnically intolerant, God needs to work in you before he can work through you. The love of God to people unlike you will always expose your own hardness of heart. Maybe you've got no problem with the rich, you've got no problem with the poor, you've got no problem with the middle class, you've got no problem with people who don't look like you and come from different cultures than you, but your issue is with people who you think are morally bankrupt. I'm talking about the criminal, the gang member, the prostitute, the financial crimes person, exploiting others. I'm talking about the sexually deviant those who prey upon the weak. In your mind, do they need to clean themselves up a bit before they deserve an extension of God's grace? See, if you have a problem with the morally bankrupt, you would have never shared the gospel with me when I was 19 years old. When a person is living like they have no desire to surrender their life to God, it does not preclude them from receiving an invitation to hear about God's love to them in Christ and a warning about what happens if they reject it. It just doesn't preclude them from that. Most people living like they have rejected God have not in fact done so. Most likely, most people, they have not rejected the gospel. They have simply never heard it. We're like Jonah. We have received God's mercy ourselves and we are in no position to begrudge extending God's mercy to others. How do you, how do, you do that? Like if this is something you're fighting with, and a lot of people are fighting with this, how do you do that? How do we break free of the bondage of looking at others as undeserving? How, how do we reckon with our own hardness of heart in a way that will allow us to participate in God's work in the world? How do we do it? Well, we've looked at Jonah and the Ninevites. We've talked about us and our culture. What about Jesus in the world? Third, Jesus in the world. Remember when I said the word overthrown in our text is a word that had dual meaning depending on the context? You know, on one hand, it's a word that meant overthrow as in destroy, and on the other hand, it meant overthrow as in flip upside down or, or bring renewal or transformation or a change of heart. See, Jonah wanted God to destroy them for their evil, and God wanted to transform them so that they would turn from their evil. God wanted them to turn from their evil. Jonah said their evil, destroy them. And that's where the tension was between the two. Jonah wanted them to pay for the evil they had done. God wanted to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He wanted to reveal himself to evil people that they might turn at that revelation. This concept should sound familiar to us who are acquainted with God's grace. Same scripture as I used last week, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Our entire life of faith is built on the foundation of the perfectly sinless one dying to atone for the sins of those who flat out do not deserve it. I said there's no category between deserving and undeserving. I suppose I could say there is a category. It's just that we're all in one of them. There's no deserving and undeserving. There's just God and people. There's Jesus, the perfect one, and us who have fallen short of his glorious standards. And at a revelation of his grace, we, the undeserving, can have our lives transformed to enter into relationship with God now and forevermore. (laughs) A couple verses after this in Romans 5 that I just read, it says that we have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, that while we were, that that happened while we were still his enemies. Like it's not just that you were maybe ignorant of who he is, it's that categorically you were an enemy of God. John Stott beautifully said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Our entire faith is based on God sending Jesus to be destroyed in our place, taking the judgment that we deserved, that we might have our hearts transformed by his grace. Do you see this? There's an exchange that happens. It's in that sense that Christ is destroyed that we might be transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's not going to be on the screen. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange made where I take all of my undeservedness and he takes it from me and gifts me all of his deservedness and perfection in place of it. That's a beautiful reality. So how do we break free from the bondage of looking at others as undeserving? Here's what I think. I think it comes down to how accurate your assessment is of your own lostness apart from Christ. Jonah didn't think he was that bad. So he didn't think other people deserved what he deserved. If you think you've been forgiven a little, you may be reluctant to share the hope you have with people who you think don't deserve it. Right? If you think, I'm, I'm pretty good. I just need a little grace top up to be saved, but I'm actually pretty good. And you cast a look upon people that goes, but they're not like me. They're not as good as me. I don't think they deserve it but I'm pretty good. Listen to me. If you are 99.9999999999% perfect, you would be undeserving categorically. And you would need a substitute. You would need a savior in your place to take upon himself your 0.0000000001 sin. And if I may be so bold, none of us are in the 99th percentile on this. We are entirely in need. But if we don't think that we're just as bad as every other person walking down the street, we perhaps 
we'll be hesitant to share the good news of grace with them because we think they don't deserve it. And that's what happened in Jonah. He is a willing recipient of God's grace, but he is a reluctant extender of God's grace. But when you realize the cosmic debt that you owe to a holy God and you realize you are entirely unable in your own strength to ever make things right, you tend to have a different view of who is deserving of God's grace. But for the grace of God go I. Christ City, I just, what, what would happen if all of us who are here right now just decided, I'm going to look past all the mess of those people in my life and I'm just going to share God's grace with them. I'm just going to warn them that there is eternity. I'm going to warn them that there is judgment. And I'm, I'm going to overlook it all. I'm not going to try and figure out the pathway for them to be from the mess they're in to, to walking with God. I don't need to figure out the pathway. I just need to bear witness to the truth. I think they deserve to hear it, though they be undeserving. What would that look like if all of us caught a flame for that today? It's terrifying, right? You're like, oh, so many awkward conversations in front of me. Yeah, eternity's a long time though. Make it awkward. Let's just have some awkward conversations about how loving God is and how needy people are. I just, I want to plead with you. Spirit of God, would you do a work in us? Sometimes we don't share because we're afraid. We just want to say nice things. And sometimes we don't share because we're judgmental. Oh Lord, would you rid us of both of those problems? Let's stand and respond together.